Hello, everybody. Welcome to Jesus Songs. My name is Brett. And just want to say right off the bat, Merry Christmas. It's the most wonderful time of the year. And really want to say thank you, um, especially if you've been listening with us all year long. Um, it's been such a fun year to launch this podcast and uh, to get season one and season two out uh, this spring and this last fall. It's just been so fun for our team to get to uh, meet with these amazing men and women, these artists, these songwriters, these worship leaders who have helped write and carry the songs that we're singing in our churches. And so it's been encouraging for us. We hope it's been encouraging for you wherever you are. You know, one of the things that I've heard back from people is that after they've listened to an episode about a song that they've loved, is that they'll be sitting in church and they'll be worshiping and then they'll they'll start playing that song and now they've got like they've got kind of new information, you know, and they've they've got um, just like a reframe or maybe they have a deeper moment with God uh, because they've listened to this to this episode. And so uh, wherever you are in that, I just hope it's encouraged you in your worship. Maybe you're a songwriter out there, an artist of any kind, and um, hopefully just to be able to be around some of these amazing artists, um, it's helping you in your journey as you dig deep for what it is that God wants you to be saying and singing in this season. So I uh, just want to say again, thank you so much for being a part of this project. It's been uh, like really amazing and fun for our team to be working on. So hope it's been encouraging and helpful wherever you're listening today. Um, and I just want to, we're a few weeks out from Passion 2024, and I know I've talked about it a handful of times, but I just got back from a gathering of all the uh, leaders of Passion 2024, the people who will be preaching God's Word and will be leading us in worship. And we just spent a quick 24 hours in Austin, Texas, uh, meeting together, praying, seeking God together, and really believing and contending for what God wants to do in this generation. And my heart is so filled up um, with expectation about what God wants to do in really just a few weeks. And so um, if you are 18 to 25, and uh, we know many of you are who are listening to this right now, um, I just want to encourage you, find a way to get to Mercedes-Benz. Um, it's, I know it might seem like a big hurdle, or maybe you're coming, you don't live in Georgia or close by, but figure out a way. I know you're resourceful and I know you can do it. You, you can do whatever you want. Um, college kids figure out a way to do whatever it is that they want to do. And, um, and so whether that's cobbling up, you know, a car load or figuring out how to pack as many people into a hotel or Airbnb, um, I just want to encourage you that you, you really want to be in the room. Um, one of the things, uh, just in this, this day that we had together was a lot of us remembered our first, um, experience with passion. And I know for me, I was a high school senior on into my freshman year of college. And I'd heard the music, the music was impacting me, the songs were impacting me. Uh, but then being around the conference and hearing the messages of passion, and I got to get down what's underneath these songs, it really changed me. And it really started to shape my life as I began to see that all of life is about the glory of God and that God is about the glory of God, and that I, I, I've I, been invited into this amazing opportunity to leverage everything that I am, all of my gifts, all of my talent, 
um, all of my relationships, my entire life, so that people would know the goodness and the greatness and the glory of God. And um, what an amazing invitation. And um, what an amazing moment for us uh, just to be able to be together as a generation and let the light of Jesus shine into the dark places. And so figure out a way to get to Mercedes-Benz in January. Uh, we love for you to be there and love for you to uh, just, you, you got to be in the room. You got to be in the room. That's that's the basic thing. But hey, uh, it's Christmas time. And as our team was talking, we can't do a whole season of Jesus songs and not do anything uh, about Christmas. And I don't know if, if you're like me as a worship leader, you have a uh, love and anxious relationship with this season of church music. One, because you got to pull out all these songs that have crazy chords and you kind of remember some of the words, but you've got to reach back and review. And um, you're, you're basically like playing a whole new set list uh, in this in this season of these Sundays leading up, up to Christmas. But um, I have grown uh, to really, really love uh, Christmas songs. And there's one in particular that I'd love uh, to come around today, and it's Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Now, this song was written hundreds of years ago by Charles Wesley, and we don't have him as an interview on the podcast today. But I thought I'd take a little bit of time and just tell you uh, the story of Charles Wesley and the story of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Uh, this song... Uh, it was written in the in the early 18th century, the 1700s, and um, and we're still singing it today. And it's had a huge impact on the world. And so I just thought it would be great to look at one of these songs that has been woven into the fabric of of Christmas music for the church. So if you're up for it today, let's jump into the story of Charles Wesley and Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Uh, like we've mentioned before, he's been referenced on the podcast a little bit this season. I know Matt Redman referenced Charles Wesley as one who wrote um, he's over 6,000 hymns, uh, which is pretty incredible to think about, especially when you dig down into his story. Most of his hymns, if not all, were written in a 50-year period um, of his life. And just 6,000, that's just a massive number. Um, also, you know, I believe we talked about Charles Wesley in the Brenton Brown episode because he went to Oxford. Well, so did Charles Wesley. And, and um, I really started to get um, really interested in his story this year as my family had an opportunity to go to England. To go, We went to London and went to Oxford for a day. And as we did, we toured Christ Church, which was is the church right there in the middle of Oxford. It's been there for, I think, a thousand years, uh, which is crazy to think about, especially as American, because nothing over here is a thousand years old. Um, but I was standing in this chapel in this church, and there's a stone that says, this is the place where John and Charles Wesley were ordained, the fathers of the Methodist movement. And um, I was just blown away by that, to think that here I am standing in this room um, where these heroes of the faith, these heroes of the church were ordained in ministry. And so it, it sent me on a path to kind of dig down into their lives and what, and, and what their story really was. And I was I've been really moved by the story of the Wesley brothers, particularly Charles, I think maybe because I am a songwriter as well, just like Charles was. John and Charles both wrote hymns, um, but they were both, they were sons of an Anglican pastor, um, 
in, in, in England and they grew up, like I said, they went to Oxford. And at Oxford, they were part of a, of a group of friends called the Holy Club. And they really wanted to, to live different lives. And um, uh, there's some really, th- this group of guys were the, they would become to be the leaders of uh, the first great awakening here in America, uh, George Whitfield, the Wesley brothers. Um, and, but they really were just about trying to, how can we just live our lives uh, differently? And that, that's really what they wanted to do. So Charles Wesley gets ordained at Christ Church, like I said, and he actually goes uh, right into mission work, and he gets on a boat, and he goes from England all the way to the colony of Georgia. So hello, shout out to Savannah, Georgia, my state right here. Uh, but it doesn't go great for Charles, and um, his time in Georgia, you know, there's actually, even if you go to St. Simon's, there's a place called Epworth-by-the-Sea, you know, and there's a lot of things named after uh, the Wesleys as they spent time there. But Charles was really wrestling in this time in his life. Uh, just as a young adult, in his early years, he was really questioning things because he never had an assurance of his salvation. He, he would always feel this sense of, I perform for God, I live my life for God, but then I would, um, he would go in a spiral of failure because he couldn't live out this holy life that these, the, this holy club, the guys uh, that, that, that they really wanted to live these different and set apart lives, but they couldn't do it in their own strength. And so he's really questioning a lot of things. Uh, But they get around Count Zinzendorf, uh, who was a leader of this Moravian group of believers. He comes back to London in the the late 1730s. And it's in this time, actually in 1738, that Charles has a personal awakening. And it's a theological awakening. And I love that because um, theology is important. So whatever you believe about God, it's important because it's how you will interact with God. And so you want to make sure that you have really good theology. I love how uh, C.S. Lewis writes about it this way in Mere Christianity. Shout out another Oxford guy. Um, but he says this about theology because I know, especially if I'm talking to a lot of artists and musicians, and uh, theology can sometimes feel like I'm trying to put God into a box, you know? Um, and it feels less real. And C.S. Lewis goes, I would agree with you uh, that theology is moving from something that's really real, like a real encounter with this holy being, um, to something that's less real as we begin to kind of talk about these doctrines of the faith, right? And so this is what C.S. Lewis compares theology to. It's like standing on the edge of the Atlantic Ocean and looking at the map of the Atlantic Ocean. But he says, here's the difference. The map is made up of, of millions of real experiences with the real ocean, and if you're only if you only want to settle for walks on the beach, you can just stand and look at the beach. But if you get to understand the map, you can leave the shore and you can sail across the ocean. And I love that idea about theology, that what you believe about God will impact how you live with and for God. And Charles Wesley in 1738 has this, this theological awakening all about grace. They were hearing, uh, him and his brother were hearing messages um, from Martin Luther, commentary from Martin Luther, the reformer, um, on Romans. And it was this idea of justification by faith alone. It was by grace, through faith, 
that you could be saved. And this idea that it's not about do my good works outweigh my bad works, this idea radically transformed Charles Wesley and John Wesley's life. And on May 21st, on Pentecost Sunday, Charles Wesley believed in the work of Christ alone for his salvation, that he was forgiven. He says, when he actually believed that, this is the moment, 1738, years after he went to Oxford, after growing up in the church, he was saved. He said he felt a strange palpitation in his heart, and he found peace with God by faith. This was the moment that that radically transformed and changed him. He began to express in words this transformation that took place. And what a lot of scholars and writers would say is that this is when the gift of hymnody was released in Charles Wesley's life. He began to write 10 verses a day, which is absolutely incredible to think about. So if you're trying to find like your personal practice or whatever about writing, I mean, just try that. Try and write a verse, a couple verses. But Charles Wesley started writing 10 verses a day all about this this transformation that Jesus died on the cross for his sins, that he rose again, and it's by that work alone that he could come alive in Christ. And so he began to write these songs of his salvation. Um, Fast forward a couple months later from this moment in 1738, New Year's Eve at 1739, Charles and John Wesley, along with other leaders, again, like George Whitfield, were gathered at the Fetter Lane Society for a New Year's Eve gathering. And when I was reading this story, I personally love that because passion always happens around New Year's Eve. And so these these prayer and worship meetings um, uh, around New Year's, I think, are, can serve as really powerful moments. But so I was really resonating with this. But it was at this gathering that they were worshiping and they were praying all night. And John Wesley writes about a moment that happened late into the night. He says this, Mr. Hall, Hinching, Ingham, Whitfield, Hutching, and my brother Charles were present at our love feast at Fetter Lane with about 60 of our brethren. About three in the morning, as we were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us, inasmuch that many cried out for exceeding joy, and many fell to the ground. As soon as we recovered a little from that awe and amazement, At the presence of his majesty, we broke out with one voice. We praise thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be the Lord. I love this moment. I love that this moment was written down and recorded because as they were praising God and they were praying, there came a moment where everybody was aware that a holy, living, almighty God was with them and among them, and they were all in awe and amazement. I love that. I hope that wherever you're worshiping, with the community that you're worshiping, that there are moments of awe and amazement, and that people realize and know that they are in the presence of His majesty. And I love that, that when God showed up like that, there was a song that He says, with one voice, He says, we praise Thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be the Lord. You see, God was on the move in in these men, in in their life. And 
what happened, a lot of people believe that this was the, the match that got lit uh, and the fire began to, to sweep through England and on into America. And, and really, we know now around the world through the work of their lives. And initially, uh, they began to preach the gospel, this gospel of justification by grace through faith. Uh, this where they could have where where you personally could have an assurance of your salvation that you didn't have to earn God's favor you just had to receive it by grace through faith and they were met with opposition uh, to this message and so they would try and preach in churches all around uh, England but there were some churches that they would eventually say hey we don't want what you're what you're preaching um, in in we just don't want like this message. And so they would go out to the fields where they would gather thousands of people and outdoor preaching, this idea of having thousands of people gathered um, to sing to God and to to preach and proclaim the message where people would give their lives to Jesus. Uh, this was not the norm. Um, but I love what's written about Charles Wesley is that um, it says that he offers Christ for all. So rich people, and poor people, educated people, uneducated people. Charles was determined to preach and proclaim the gospel to anyone and everyone who would hear and believe. And God was on the move and people were getting saved. God was changing and transforming other people just like he did Charles and John Wesley. And what you see in this moment in history, just like you always do, is when God's people are being saved, they also start singing. You see this in the scripture. If you go back all the way to Exodus 14 and 15, you see where God brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And, he, and as the, the Pharaoh and the, the enemies of the people of God are pursuing uh, the nation of Israel, uh, God splits the Red Sea open and he leads them uh, to safety to the other side. And he closes the sea and crushes the enemy of the Israelites. And when that happens, when God saves his people in Exodus 15, uh, we see the first so recorded song of worship. And it, it goes like this. It's the song of Moses and Miriam. And it says, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver. He is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. When God moves and saves people, worship is the proper and right response, the most natural response. We see this in the early church as people would gather and Paul would gather people uh, to, to sing spiritual songs with and for each other as it lifts up and encourages the body of Christ. And you see it in the throne room of eternity as we stand in awe of the Lamb who was slain and angels and elders and saints come around and worship God. God saves and the people sing. So now let's get back to Charles Wesley in the 18th century and Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You see, Charles Wesley had a way of engaging people's minds and hearts. And what people wrote about him is that his singing in these songs would create an atmosphere of togetherness and faith uh, that would help lead people into their salvation. 
Um, it says that the, the, his hymns would carry the message of the gospel story. Um, and so it was in this moment, it, as he was saved in 1738, 17, on New Year's Eve in 1739, he has this radical experience with the Holy Spirit. Um, the, the next year in 1739, John and Charles Wesley published a book called Hymns and Sacred Poems. And it was in this book that Hark the Herald Angels Seem was first written, except its original title was called Hymns for Christmas Day. And let me read to you the first verse of Hymns for Christmas Day. The original first verse goes like this, Hark how all the welkin rings, glory to the King of Kings, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled, joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. Universal nature say, Christ the Lord is born today. And it has a couple verses uh, that are much like the ones we know, but then there were two verses I had never seen before, and they go like this. Come, desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. Now display thy saving power, ruin nature now restore. Now in mystic union join, thine to ours and ours to thine. The last verse goes like this. Adam's likeness, Lord of face, stamp thy image in its place. Second Adam, from above, reinstate us in thy love. Let us thee, thy lowest, regain, thee the life, the inner man. O to all thyself impart, formed in each believing heart. Now, the original tune of this song uh, was believed to have been set to Christ the Lord is risen today, which is another, which is his hymn all about the resurrection of Jesus. And so uh, this, this song would have been sung um, on and on and on. And then we would fast forward into 1754, where George Whitfield published a book called Collection of Hymns for Social Worship. Um, George Whitfield, as you know, is one of their buddies all the way back to the Oxford days. He was a huge evangelist in uh, England, went to America, was a big leader and figurehead in the Great Awakening before the American Revolution in the 1700s. And when he put this hymn in this book in 1754, he did some editing. And he's the one who edited that first line, this iconic first line to Hark the herald, angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And it was George Whitfield who decided to cut those last two verses. And uh, it didn't make, Charles Wesley was not thrilled about this. Um, but, you know, uh, sometimes you need some editing. And so thank you, George, for doing some editing uh, on, on this hymn. Well, fast forward to 100 years from then, from that moment in 1855, William Cummings used uh, the tune Vetterlin in the Nine Guan. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I believe this is a, a German tune, uh, and that's the, the tune that we know and now have today. And so this song has uh, moved and shifted over over these hundreds of years. And what I've always found fascinating about this song is that we're still singing it 300 years later, just about, almost 300 years later. 
I don't know many English songs that we're still singing from 300 years ago that are very much woven into the pop culture and society of our lives. If you were just to go search in Spotify or Apple Music, you would see versions of this song by Nat King Cole, Frank Sinatra, Carrie Underwood, The Pentatonics, Andy Williams, The Vince Guaraldi Trio, CeCe Winans, Weezer has a version of this song, Hello, uh, Phil Wickham, Matt Marr, Darius Rucker, George Strait, Chris Tomlin, Amy Grant, Martina McBride, and Elevation Worship just put out a version of this song. So it's, it's in music. You can hear it as you're shopping at the mall for your Christmas presents. Um, it's in movies. Uh, iconic. This, I watch this movie every year with my family. It's a Wonderful Life. It was made in 1946. It's considered one of the top 100 films ever made. It was on NBC every single Christmas. Um, and it's a story of redemption and meaning and purpose to see that our lives matter and count uh, to the community around us. And at the very end of this movie, at the the moment where everything comes together, uh, this family in this town, they come together and they're singing Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Charlie Brown Christmas special in 1965. And in those years, it would have been one of the top rated shows as it came on each year for Christmas. And generations of children in America have watched uh, this, this show. And at the end, you hear a kid's choir singing, Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. Beyond just Christian and church music, what other songs are woven into the fabric of society like this one, hundreds of years after the time it was written? Not many, but I find that it's incredible that this song that has the gospel message of God coming to us as Jesus coming to us to save and redeem us, that this song has endured hundreds of years and transcended uh, so, so many things. And so just as we close our episode today, I just want to say uh This Christmas season, I would really encourage you to push past the ritual of Christmas carols and be in awe that because of Christmas, we can be forgiven and reconnected into a relationship with our Creator. This is what Christmas is all about, that our God has come to save us and to walk with us through every high and low. And as a church, let's come together and sing and proclaim this story of the most amazing grace to our communities. Let's hold out this message of love and grace that glory has come to you and to me. And I just want to close with my favorite verse in this song. I think Charles Wesley articulated the gospel message in one of the most beautiful ways in this verse when he wrote it like this, Hail the heavenly prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. That's what it's all about. That's what this season is all about. And so I pray wherever you're singing this song, that there would be more awakenings, that people would wake up to the truth that God has come to us, that we can be saved, we can be freed and forgiven. 
And I hope you have a Merry Christmas. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast and being a part of Jesus Songs. We'll see you next year in 2024.